Welcome, welcome, welcome to the My Thing Is This podcast. I'm your host, Troy Sampson. And each week, we talk about what's going on in the world. And as we talk about that, I let you know my thing is this, about what's going on in the world. Again, I'm your host, Troy Sampson. Welcome to the My Thing Is This podcast. Stay tuned, buckle up, and enjoy the ride. It is Sunday, November 28, 2021. I'm your host, Troy Sampson, for the My Thing Is This podcast. And it's been an interesting week, to say the least. Um, we've had a lot of stuff happen this week. The one thing, or one major thing, being the Ahmad maybe trial, justice for Ahmad, and I'm sorry, the Ahmad Arbery trial. Well, I say maybe. So it's just in my head, not in my heart. It's been a long week. But the Ahmaud Arbery trial, and we all know the outcome of it. They found <clears throat> the McMichaels and Ronnie Bryan guilty of murder. And so according to the legal experts in the state of Georgia, there's three, I think there's three sentencing guidelines they go by in murder charges. It's 25, I think it's what, life with the possibility of parole. And I think that parole is eligible for parole. You're eligible for parole after 25 years. Then there's life without parole, which means you get life and there's no parole. And then, of course, there's a death penalty. So those are the, those are the, the, the sentencing, I guess, criteria that's going to be coming up here soon. But here's the thing I want to talk about and what I find very interesting about this case. In the case, you know, the, the, the opening statement started on November 5th and um, they met Michaels and Ronnie Bryan's legal teams argued that their clients, you know, suspected Ahmad was involved in several burglaries um, in a largely white neighborhood, specifically of a house being built um, under construction in the neighborhood. Now, everybody's got a ring camera. Everybody's got cameras these days. And then they, apparently there were cameras inside this house being constructed. And so one of the interesting things was, <laughs> uh, is 
the surveillance video showed Ahmad entering the home under construction on multiple occasions. Um, there was no evidence in the video presented to the court, and even in the videos that you saw, that Ahmad took anything um, or that he was even responsible for the neighborhood break-ins or thefts that were being reported. Um, and so, you know, the lawyers try to argue that the defendants were intended to make a citizen's arrest, right? But my question is, and my thing is this, if you're going to make a citizen's arrest, a citizen, right? What is the guidelines for a citizen's arrest? Do you take a 357 Magnum and a shotgun and chase down someone? And arrest them? A citizen's arrest, what are the, I wonder what the guidelines are for that. Hopefully, you know, someone can tell me that one day. Or maybe I'll Google it. Um, to find out what the guidelines are, what constitutes a citizen's arrest and what's the proper procedure for that. Because if this young man was accused of breaking and entering and stealing something from the house, he's jogging down the road with nothing visible in his hands. And there's several times the video surveillance inside the newly constructed home showed him not taking anything. And so they make it seem as though he took off running like he did something wrong and so on and so forth. And so, you know, these guys, you know, Travis McMichael, you know, fired three shots um, in his tussle with Ahmad and two of which apparently struck him. And they said he feared for his life as the man, as the, as the two of them scuffled. But my thing is this, why are you scuffling with somebody with a gun? If that man is unarmed, he's running, he's going for a jog. Why do you have a gun to make that citizen's arrest? Why y'all chasing him down in a truck? And then, of course, Ronnie Bryan, they running this game where Ronnie Bryan's videotaping it and they're trying to box him in because he's in this vehicle to kind of box him in. And there's one video that shows Ahmad running toward Ronnie Bryan's vehicle because they had him boxed in. And it's very interesting. Um, I watched... Um, I think it was 2020 where they had cameras inside the courtroom. And, you know, Ahmad's mom had never seen the video of her son being murdered until that trial. And when she saw it, she was obviously shaken, both visibly and verbally shaken. And when she saw it, she just kind of screamed out, you know, in pain in the courtroom when she saw it. And so, you know, they tried to make it seem as though it was self-defense. They was making a citizen's arrest. But, of course, the prosecution pushed back against that idea that he was shot down in self-defense um, and basically said they just shot and killed him. Not because he was really a threat to them, but because he wouldn't stop and talk to them. He don't know these people. You know, my thing is this. How many people you know is going to come at you like that and you're just going to stop and talk to them like that. You don't know what their intentions are, especially in this climate we live in now. How do you know, you know, if if these people are who they say they are or what, what it is they want with you? You're just out for a run. 
They're going to pull up to you aggressively and try to stop you and talk to you. What you want, man? You can't talk to me while I'm jogging in the road to find out what's going on. So, you know, that's, that's, that's interesting. And, you know, there was some trepidation about the makeup of the jury. Obviously, because there was, you know, 11 whites and one black um, on that jury. But I think that jury, all 12, saw through the evidence. They saw through all the muck. Um, They saw through pretty much everything that was going on. It's like, what reason did y'all, I mean, they saw the surveillance video from the home. He took nothing. They saw while he was running, he had nothing in his possession from the home. And they literally chased this man down. And then when they caught up with him, he ran around the front side of the truck. Travis McMichael jumps out. They get into a tussle. He shoots him twice. And then they kind of just leave him there. And then, you know, watching 2020, there was video from a, a body cam video. And nobody rented that young man aid. Somebody said, you can hear one of the officers say he might be still breathing. But there are several layers to this that I think now that they've gotten to the crux and reached a verdict on the McMichaels and Ronnie Bryan, they need to now go after the the two district attorneys that basically ignored this and said on this evidence. And the one that replaced the woman supposedly wrote a letter basically getting the McMichaels out of jail for free by saying there was nothing in the case that required their investigation. They, they acted in self-defense and so on and so forth. I guess he figured on his way out he could write something that will ensure their freedom. Well, that was wrong. He got that wrong. We know that was wrong. So, you know, he got that all wrong. So the trial ended up being what it is. But I think there still needs to be some justice prevailed with the two DAs, the two former district attorneys that said on this, whole thing, and then one tried to cover it up by writing this letter. Also, you have to hold law enforcement on the scene accountable. This young man is laying on the ground ground bleeding to death, and no one is really trying to... He's laying on the ground when they get there, so no one immediately rushes in to even see if he's he's still alive, and then they check him. He's like, yeah, I think he's still breathing. And they let time go by. Did anybody call 911? So there's an accountability that needs to go across the board in this case all across the board. And then here we are, we reach this verdict. You know, Kyle Rittenhouse basically gets off. Then we reach this verdict, right? And I think the Brian, Ronnie Brian and them thought that, oh, by videotaping this, this was going to get them off. No, that's not going to get you off, dude. Because when all the evidence comes to the surface, it's going to all come out in the wash. Because my thing is this, you can't citizens arrest somebody if you didn't actually witness them doing anything. You just saw a young man come out of the house and then he started back to running. And, you know, down south, down there, I mean, he's in a predominantly white neighborhood. I don't blame him for being put a little pep in his step. You know, especially if, you know, that is known to have issues with race. I, I don't necessarily blame him for putting a little pep in his step as he's running through that neighborhood. And then you're being chased down in these trucks. And, of course, he's probably nervous and scared because he's trying to figure out what's going on, especially in today's climate. And what I'm saying is not anything prejudiced or racist or whatever I'm whatever it is I'm saying. It, it, it's a reality that we live in. A lot of people don't want to live in that reality that we have a race problem in this country. So enough of that. Um, justice has prevailed for um, Ahmad's family. Um, 
the sentencing um, is going to be coming soon, so we'll be watching out for that. Meanwhile, Breonna Taylor's <laughs> murderers are still free, and so we're still, you know, uh, hoping and praying that justice be bought for Breonna Taylor and, you know, her killers are still out there, basically. But I'm going to shift gears here for a second and talk about work. Not in particular my work, but just work in all, work general. You know, um, a lot of people are saying goodbye to the job because the pandemic has kind of changed how, especially in this country, how Americans, you know, what their attitude is about work. You know, um, a lot of people have quit their jobs. That's why there's a surplus of jobs available in the United States right now, because people were, you know, trying to understand why am I working this hard and what am I really getting out of it? And a lot of people are like, yo, man, this 40 hour work week is for the birds. You know, I'm putting in all this work and you're not really paying me like I should, you know. Uh, there's an article I read about this. It, it says, you know, experts who study the history and cultural role of work in the United States. <laughs> the fact that this moment occurred during the pandemic is largely unsurprising. We're talking about people leaving work. As millions and millions of Americans have long been exhausted by harsh working conditions. Long hours, low pay, little flexibility. And many, especially those who were deemed essential workers, have been burnt out by the pandemic. And so people are, you know, in a sense saying that they're systematically underpaid. You know, they get a ridiculously low share of the value that they produce over the course of a day. Um, they're doing most of the work, and yet they're treated pretty badly and receive wages they can't live on. You know, that quote was you know, from a, a associate professor of women's studies at Duke University, uh, Kathy Weeks, who is the author of The Problem with Work, Feminism, Markism, anti-work politics and post-work imaginaries. And it says the pandemic was the straw that brought the camels back for a lot of people. You know, people were tired of putting in all this work and not seeing enough pay for it. Meanwhile, you got people, billionaires getting super wealthy while we're in the middle of a pandemic. And it's off the backs of many people because without the work, without the people doing the work, these billionaires aren't rich, and yet they get these tax breaks, they get all these loopholes, and they get wealthy. You know, a couple of things came across um, the news cycle, uh, as well as social media. Um, one thing was, I saw this on social media, was that dollar, somebody posted on social media, Dollar Tree has made $1.2 billion, I think, this year. And their CEO got a $10 million bonus, I guess, for them making $1.2 billion. And yet they said they have 7,400 workers that work at Dollar Tree that only make $8.32 an hour. And many of those folks are having to apply for Medicaid, Medicare, and other public assistance to help ends meet while working at Dollar Tree. You put an eight-hour workday for $8.32 an hour. Meanwhile, the CEO of Dollar Tree, off your back, is getting... A $10 million bonus because they hit $1.2 billion. And you really want to know why they hit $1.2 billion? And this is my belief, my belief only, because my thing is this. You hit $1.2 billion because people can't afford to go to, people probably couldn't afford to go to Walmart and Target and those other places because they didn't have a job. So what's the, what's the best way to go get food for your family? What's the cheapest way? 
is go to Dollar Tree. And then Dollar Tree, after they announced that, that they made $1.2 billion, the CEO got $10 million in a bonus. Now the Dollar Tree is going, and I can't call it Dollar Tree anymore. You got to call it Dollar $25 Dollar Tree or Dollar, dollar 25 Tree because they're raising the prices on everything up to a dollar and 25 cents. And I don't see the real justifiable reason. If they recorded profits, record profits of $1.2 billion, that means people are buying from the Dollar Tree. If nothing else, if Dollar Tree really wants to make an impact on society, my thing is this. Drop it down to 95 cents. Get under a dollar. Doesn't get more people coming to Dollar Tree. And also raise the staff's wages, man. $8.32 to work at Dollar Tree. Do you do these people, does the CEO know what the people that work at Dollar Tree have to go through when they work at Dollar Tree? Long lines. You know, rude customers. Depending on what store you go to, the store conditions is just terrible. Stuff all in the aisles. Some of them are a lot a lot nicer, but you you want somebody to keep your store looking professional and be professional and handle all the droves of customers coming in. And you want them to do all that with a smile for $8.32 an hour? Ah, I got a problem with that. Or should I say I take pause with that? It's kind of a hard pill to swallow to have people working for $8.32 an hour. And your CEO has got a $10 million bonus. And now you're about to raise the prices from a dollar to a dollar twenty-five. And so are you gonna raise them up to nine thirty-two an hour? Because you raise it up to a dollar twenty-five? Are you gonna raise them, raise the salaries or the pay for employees twenty-five cents or a dollar or more? Or are you gonna do like um I was listening to Joe Madison on the Joe Madison show on Sirius XM Urban View. Channel 126. Shout out to Urban View. Sirius XM, Channel 126. Um, and he had a caller call in. I think I might have told this story on one of my podcasts before. But it's kind of relevant now to this article that I read about, you know, people saying goodbye to the job. And I had a mother call in. She's got two. I think she had two college-age kids. And one of the college-age kids was working at a fast food restaurant while going to school at the same time. The woman said that child made $8.50 an hour. Said the fast food restaurant bumped the child up to $10.50 an hour. And right after they did that, they cut the child, they cut, they took 20 hours of the child's time to work. So this child was working 80 hours, right? 80 hours, 40 hours a week, every two weeks, 80 hours, right? Or 40 hours a week. Let's just say 40 hours a week. So they raise this child's salary or wage from 850 to 1050. That's a nice $2 bump. But then you cut back 20 hours. So you put them at a higher tax rate with that $10.50 versus $8.50. Then you cut the hours back. So you're really evening out. They're probably even making less now. My thing is this. That shouldn't be a job in this country making less than $25, $25 to $30 an hour. It shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. 
and you don't have to raise the, the cost of anything at a dramatic level. And that's one of the problems that they that you know the experts have talked about. I think of Benjamin Honeycutt, who was a historian from the University of Iowa, who's always studied the role that work plays in American lives, and he's done this for decades. Um, says that you know, as wages, <laughs> wages have pretty much stayed the same since. I think he said 1979, right? And that's a huge gap. So it says there's a huge gap between the productivity of workers over the last 40 years and the amount of an amount that wages have grown during the same time. Wages today offer workers the same purchasing power that they had in 1979 with the highest 10 for wage earners seeing the most meaningful my apologies for that brief pause there folks I had a technical difficulty but uh i think i'm straight now but anyway going back to this this wage gap right so the purchasing power that we have now is about the same as in 1979 it says with the highest tenth of wage earners seeing the most meaningful rise in wages each year but that doesn't really equate though why do we have the same purchasing power we did in 1979 it says about 43, 43 million Americans have student loan debt worth a total of $1.7 trillion. It says gig and contract works, which typically comes without health benefits, insurance, or retirement, has risen 15% over the last decade. So even before this pandemic, you know, a lot of millennials said that they were financially worse off than their parents were and having less wealth than the previous generations, largely because of rising cost of homes and student debt. It's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. You, you can't expect to pay people a certain wage and then expect them to continue to perform at a certain level when they can barely feed their family. That's why I love Dan Price, Dan Price out in Seattle. Shout out to Dan Price, Seattle. Dan Price back in 2015, and, and it didn't gain a lot of traction um, as it is now. Dan Price Credit Card Processing Company out in Portland uh, decided to pay everyone coming into the door $70,000 starting. Staff members were loved it. He even went so far as to drop his million dollar salary down to $70,000 too. So when the pandemic hit, obviously businesses took a hit. His company took a hit. They went through some lean times. He didn't shut them down. Didn't lay anybody off, but everybody agreed to take Drop their salaries down to forty thousand dollars. Keep the company afloat. He did that. So when the economy turned around, he turned around and said, "Okay, let's bump everybody back up to their normal salary, seventy thousand or above, or whatever you was making back then." And then he went so far as to say, "I'm gonna give you back the money you lost during this during that several month period where we were in the lean times." That's a CEO. That's a that's a leader you'll follow, and those people are loyal to him. I mean, truly loyal to him, fiercely loyal to him for doing that. But he's like the Jerry Maguire of the business world because most business 
business were kept saying, oh, you're going to fold, you're going to fold, you're going to fold. You'll never last. You'll never make it with that model because all they know is keep me rich and keep the products going and everything is good. Come on now. He's able to still keep his market share in the credit card processing business at the same time. Pay his people a fair wage. My thing is this. Everybody can do that. Why does a CEO need 3,000% higher salary than the lowest people on the totem pole? Yes, they comes. Yes, running a company comes with a lot of risks, a lot of all those kind of risks, financial, legal, so on and so forth. You take that risk on. And I get that. And if you want to say, you know, because I take that risk on, I deserve $10 million a year. That's fine. Right. That's fine. I have no problem with that. But if your your staff people are keeping your company in the black, way in the black, producing record revenues each year, so you're getting record profits each year, and your operating costs aren't really changing, that's pretty much the same. Yeah, I'll give or take a little, maybe five, 10% each year boost up on operating costs, but there's still enough money that you can say, I can take care of my people. I can take care of my people. Look at look at the big box stores like Walmart. Come on now, you shouldn't have people. I mean, Walmart's trying to change, you know, offering people college now and stuff like that. But you know, Walmart's raking in billions. Everybody goes to Walmart. Same thing with Amazon. I mean, these people should be making twenty five, thirty, starting out twenty five, thirty, forty dollars an hour for their money, and and it wouldn't and they wouldn't put a huge dent in their business model. Now, some will argue. I'm pretty sure some finance people will argue and say, well, you got to factor in corporate costs, insurance, all those sorts of things. Even after you factor it in, even after you factor that in, the CEOs, yes, they're the figurehead, but those other VPs that are below the CEO, what are they really doing? It's the workers doing the work. You're paying some manager at Walmart 90, maybe 100 grand to manage a Walmart store, right? Okay. Meanwhile, again, Walmart itself was raking in umpteen billion dollars a year. The people that's working for that manager shouldn't have to be scraping for, you know, scraps. Shouldn't have to be scraping for scraps. My thing is this, that's enough to go around. Everybody can eat. Everybody can have a big slice of pie. To where everybody can earn a living wage and take care of their kids and their families and stuff like that. One of the things they talked about in the article was a lot of people said the experience of walking away from work has awakened people. You know, there's other things to do. There's walks in the park, you know. There's life beyond work that nobody ever thought they had before. You know, and even some, even a lot of companies have caught on to the decreasing tolerance for work. You know, the long hours and the bad conditions. You know, a lot of companies have implemented change. Dozens of companies have announced that they will allow their employees to work remotely indefinitely. I know Price Cooper Waterhouse, the financial giant, came out and was the first one to say that. I think Twitter, Jack Dorsey and his folks said that they weren't bringing anybody back. And if you really think about the remote work, right, Think about the operating costs that the company's saving by having their people work remotely. 
you don't have to heat a building. You don't have to pay for electric. You don't have to pay for water. You don't have to pay for natural gas. You don't have to pay to gas up a generator, a backup generator. You have to pay for security if you got security in your building. You have to pay for grounds maintenance. You have to have to pay for building maintenance, clean up people. Think about all the operating costs you'll save by having people working from home. And from the flip side of that, and I could be letting the cat out of the bag, but my thing is this, I'm not, right? Think about it. When people work from home, people tend to not take call in sick too much. And we've all been there. And don't tell me, if you listen, don't tell me you haven't. You wake up Monday morning after a long weekend and you just don't feel like it. You know? Or you got a sinus, something's going on with sinuses, or you got a scratchy throat, or your nose is running, or you got something that's going on with you that's not sick enough to keep you in bed but not really sick enough to keep you at home, to keep you from going to work, right? But it's a nuisance enough to where you feel bad enough to where people now irritate you. You don't want to talk to nobody. You know, the little things get on your nerves because you this little irritant in the back of your throat or the irritant in your sinuses is, is, is making you very edgy and very irritable, right? So think about that. But think about Waking up, you got the sniffles, your sinuses is draining, scratchy throat. And all you have to do is go downstairs, get out of bed, go brush your teeth, wash your face, go downstairs, make a hot cup of tea, right? And this is a half an hour or 15 minutes before you have to log on. And then after you get yourself together with that, take the dog out. Then you go sit down at your desk and you log on. You don't have anybody coming to you. Hey, what's going on? Having to drive, get showered, shave, do your hair, brush your teeth, worry about what you're going to wear. Then get in this traffic. If you got to take traffic or take the metro, if you got to take the metro and deal with people, deal with all the kind of stuff, just the hustle and bustle of the day. For some people driving an hour, two hours of work just to get there. You have to deal with any of that. You can sleep. If you got to be at work at 8, you can sleep until 7.45. Wake up, brush your teeth, wipe, wash your face off, grab a hot cup of tea, a couple lozenges, and you sit down and you log in. And you just go to work. You just go to work. And sometimes you'll find yourself getting to that day that you normally would have called in sick for because you just didn't feel like it. Just didn't feel like it. So I say this. Working from home, if you're motivated, should be what people do. A lot of people can't work from home. Too many distractions going on. They're distractible easily. But a lot of people can work from home. I found myself sometimes, if I'm not paying attention to the clock, it's 5, 36, 7, 8 o'clock at night before I log off. And I started my day at 8 because you get so engrossed. Well, my wife would peek in at 5, 30, 
or six o'clock. I have to come home. She gets off at three thirty. She'll come home, pick her hair in the door. Hey, honey. I say, hey, how you doing? Close the door back. Then about six, she may peek her head in. Honey, you still working? And when she says that, honey, you still working? I realize, look at the clock. Oh crap, it's six o'clock. So this is the things that you know people are doing. And so companies like Price Cooper Waterhouse, Kickstarter, Shopify, um, have even well not Price Cooper Waterhouse, but Kickstarter and Shopify are experimenting with four day work weeks. You know, so they they looking at that. So those are the things that companies are looking at. I know some people work for the federal government where they actually do four 10-hour days, you know? Um, matter of fact, lawmakers are getting into the game. So, you know, people are looking more seriously at paid family and medical leave, which is a heavy debate on Congress right now. Um, Mark Takano, a U.S. representative from California, has introduced a bill for a 32-hour work week. So, you know, 32-hour work week, man, that's that's four days. That's four days. That's four days, man. So, you know, people are looking at different ways, and people have found joy and freedom in working from home. And so, you know, that's been a blessing. And so companies really need to take a look at that. I mean, like I said, it's not for everybody. But it's something that people should take a look at. Then shifting gears again, I'm going to dig into this one last topic before I sign off. I've been on here for about 30 minutes. Um, so just let me say this. Like what you hear so far? Make sure you hit the like and subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by you, our listeners, and by the mighty man himself, God. Thank you for your support, and thank you, Lord, for making this possible. Now I'm back to the show. So I found this article. As some of you know, many of you may not know, I am a father of a 19-year-old son who is living with autism and ADHD. We had to traverse the special education system um, from the time he got diagnosed at about three um, up until graduating this past summer with a diploma, high school diploma. And so we've been on this journey. And so Disability Scoop is a website that covers a lot of disabilities. And they recently wrote an article about a survey that was done. And the survey says, survey finds schools failing to offer compensatory services to students in special education, right? And so... Um, the article starts out says the vast majority of students with disabilities have been offered no compensatory services. A new survey finds, despite deep concerns from parents about learning loss and regression amidst the COVID nineteen pandemic, uh, eighteen about eighteen percent of students with disabilities have been offered any compensatory services from their school, according to findings from a national survey that was conducted by the Council of Parent Attorneys and Advocates (COPA). Um, this nonprofit um, works to advocate for the rights of students with disabilities and their families. And they surveyed about 254 
parents with children with disabilities in 36 states and 206 school districts in late October and early November. And it says more than five out of six parents said that their kids experienced learning loss, regression, or slower than expected progress toward goals after the emergence of COVID-19 that led to school closures and remote learning. Hmm. That's interesting. That's interesting. And my thing is this, it, it, it was bound to happen um, this way because a lot of our students with living with disabilities that are students in school rely heavily on face-to-face contact, um, direct supports and all those things. And so, yes, there was, it was, they were bound to suffer. Um, they were bound to suffer. during this crisis. So, you know, the survey was pretty comprehensive. And so I'm going to run down some of the key findings in the survey. So finding number one says, very few students with disabilities are benefiting from compensatory services related to COVID, despite evidence of significant impacts and need, and despite federal guidance on the topic. So more than five out of six parents, that's 86%, According to the survey report, their students experienced learning loss, regression, or slowing learning than expected towards learning goals. Um, and then less than one in five students receive any compensatory services. That's your 18, 86%. And so one of the questions that came up for the 254 response, out of the 254 responses says, did your students experience learning loss or regression? And the answers were yes, not sure, no. Out of the 254 responses, there were 217 yeses, 16 not sures, and 21 no's. So two out of the 254 responses, 217 reported that there was a loss, learning loss, and skills regression. So that's that 86%, right? And then... You had 250 responses to this question. Did your school award compensatory services to your child? And out of the 250 responses, right, there were 47 yeses and 203 no's. So that's your one in five students. That's the 18%. That's crazy. That is crazy. So a lot of kids didn't get compensatory services. All right. And so finding number two, school districts appear to be ignoring or incorrectly interpreting state and federal guidance on compensatory services related to COVID. So parents were not informed about compensatory services. So that's about one in four parents of eligible students, that's 25%, receive information from their school regarding the availability of compensatory services. And few schools shared their progress for determining the awards with parents, that's 15%. So one in four parents actually received information. So that's three parents out of four parents that didn't get anything. You know what I'm saying? And so failing to follow guidance. So so despite guidance that directs schools to seek parents' input in the determination process, only about a quarter of award proposals, 23%, reflected parents' input. Wow. 
It says parents also reported that services offered were often not individualized or appropriate for their child as required by guidance, nor were they adequate to the onset of learning losses. And see, that's the thing. My thing is this, and I can do a whole podcast on my experience traversing public education in this country with a child with an IEP, but more so just the whole entire education system itself. Um, needs an overhaul. The way we do education in this country definitely needs an overhaul. It's been cookie cutter the same way for decades and there's no change into it. It's like you got more and more children that are, that are um, qualifying or being just being determined through testing that they have some sort of intellectual, uh, emotional, or otherwise other disability they're living with, you know, autism, ADHD, Down syndrome, deaf and hard of hearing, you know, some kids, even some children, students even have multiples where they've got cerebral palsy or MS or they got something else on top of several other modalities uh, that they're living with. And then there's all the little intricacies in there, like re- re- receptive and expressive language delay or disorder. You got echolasia. You got all these, you got dyslexia, you got all these other little things that intertwine within the education of these children. And so basically the article, because I'm not going to go into it because it's, 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 it's several pages long. I'm not going to go into too much detail on it. But it's basically saying compensatory services have not been offered at all. Now, I'm, I serve on a board here in where I live, and I've heard parents say they haven't gotten letters um, a CCAC, Special Education Citizen Advisory Council, where I live at here in Maryland, and I've heard parents say, we haven't received anything about compensatory services. And I think one thing that the pandemic has really shown us is not only is our financial and work system fragile, but our education educational system is just as fragile. Um, you have kids that are not living with disabilities, don't have IEPs, they're struggling. The model needs to be changed, but it needs to be more so changed and a higher priority needs to be given to special education students. You know, nobody wants to, nobody went into childbearing with the notion, oh, I want a special, I want a special needs child. Nobody's done that. I don't think I can't, some people may have, I don't know. I don't believe that anybody would, actually do that because we all when we begin to have children we want normal what they call normal healthy children that's what we did my wife and i went into this got married and went into getting ready to have kids and wanted normal healthy wanted normal healthy children and some parents are a lot of parents are blessed with normal healthy children a lot of parents are not a lot of parents have children that have disabilities and we're all god's children so it's not like they are less than, and I, I find a lot of our children living with disabilities are, have the ability to learn. It's just different. They have their own personalities. It's just different. It's not the norm because they're living with what they live with and they're doing it the best that they can. And our parents are struggling, especially in the school system. The school system needs an overhaul from the pay our teachers. You know, teachers, my thing is this, and since my personal opinion alone coming out the gate you graduate from college 
go to school, you get a degree in education or whatever it is required to become a teacher, when you come out of college, you walk in and doing 95, 95,000, fresh out of college. You get five years in, tenure, you know, depending on if you get a special education teaching certificate or any other specialty that you do, you get a master's, you automatically over six, six figures. And it just continues to go up where, you know, some of the most seasoned teachers that are good at their jobs can they reach over up to 200, I would believe. And I think you need to change the model. Some countries, I think it's Japan or one of those uh, countries in the Far East, um, I think they have a model of they don't teach anything to their children about, they don't teach, I think they teach how to learn from kindergarten through fourth grade. Then I think after fourth grade is when they introduced them to curriculum. But we got to change this model. And we definitely got to change this model for our children with IEPs. Because if nothing else, it's, it's exposed. It's, but, you know, again, when you have a system that is strapped, I don't think any school system in this country should have to scrape and scrap for dollars. I don't think there should be any school system that has to fight for federal dollars. I don't think there should be any school system that, whether it's a, in the poorest neighborhood or the richest neighborhood, the funding should be there and the resources should be there for that school to educate children, period. It shouldn't be based on the school's performance. It should be based on what the school needs and not what the school's performance is, what the children need. And the resources should be there. There should be plenty of speech therapists in a school. There should be plenty of special education teach qualified special education teachers in the school. Plenty of OT therapists in the school. There should be more than enough resources of adults in each school to assist our children with their IEPs or their 504s. And looking at this COPA report, it's just ridiculous. You know, 253 responses of the question of, did your school inform you about services? Out of 253 responses, 173 said no. 17 said not sure. So you might as well throw the 17 in with the 173, which would then put you at 190. Right. And then you have 63 that said yes. And then the other question was, did your school district's proposal reflect your input? Out of that, you had 66 said they received an offer. 15 said yes. 20 said somewhat. And 31 said no. You know, parents believe that the, the, the process of awarding compensatory services is unfair. So they interviewed 140, 149 responses they got back to the question of, did you feel your school's process was fair? 21 said yes. 38 said not sure. 90 said no. I, I think you can throw the 38 with the 90s. And then it says, if you were told that your student did not meet eligibility for services, did you agree? And that was 72 responses. 55 said no, they didn't agree. 14 said they weren't sure. And only three said yes, that they agreed. So these things are fluid, man. You know, then they, then they turn around. And, and I don't like to talk about this stuff without coming up with solutions because I tried to be a solution-oriented person. So in the COPA study, they had recommendations. 
They had recommendations for parents, students, and, and, and guardians, right? So parents should ask the school for their policy on compensatory services related to COVID. As for the policy, it says parents should request compensatory services through their child's IEP team when warranted slash as needed and work with the team to design an appropriate workable program of compensatory services. The problem with that is, is that most schools don't implement the IEPs correctly. It's either a resource problem or a human technical or teaching problem. I, I, you know, parents complain all the time about well, the child's IEP is not being implemented. And then it becomes a special education department problem. Well, the special education department doesn't necessarily have the clout to hold the teachers at the school accountable. Why? Because the teachers report to the principals. The principals are the one that's supposed to be holding those, those teachers accountable for not implementing IEPs. That should, that it should roll down from the principal to the special education chair, then to the teachers, the supervisory or the, the case, the supervisory person from the, from the special education department that handles that school should be consulted about it. And when, and when the, the parents complain to the special education department, that person that represents the special education department that covers that school should pass that information on to the principal in detail. So the principal can then go and say, hey, you need to fix this. Because the principals are the ones that have the ability to hire and fire and, and, and write the evals of the people, not special education department. So that's one of the, that's one of the biggest problems because you're not going to get everybody looking at things the same way. IDEA, Individuals, Individuals with Disability Education Act, says it clearly, specific to the child. And a lot of IEPs are written in a cookie-cutter fashion, which is not right because each child that has an IEP is different. I, I, my son went to the Harvard school and there's plenty of children on autism spectrum in the Harvard school and all of them may exhibit some of the same external characteristics and maybe some internal characteristics, but they're still different people. They're still different. So you got to cater the education to be that way. It says if they think their request for compensatory services has not been appropriately addressed, the parents should seek a remedy, e.g. due process hearing, or complaint to the State Department of Education or the Office of Civil Rights. They don't even say go up the tree. Most school systems have a hierarchy of how you should address your problems. Start with the teacher. Start with the teacher. Start with the principal or the special education chair, then the principal, then it goes up the chain. Here, they're saying due process or complaint to your state, Department of Education or Office of Civil Rights right out the gate. They're not even saying talk to the teacher, talk to the principal, follow the local school system's hierarchy of filing, filing the complaint. They're going straight to due process, complaint hearing. right? And then there's recommendations for the school districts and the states. And so statues and local, what they call local education, educational agency, LEAs, should reopen compensatory services award process if needed to ensure that the 2021, 20, 2020, 21, and 2021 22 school years are included in the eligible time frame. State and local education agencies should proactively communicate with parents about the new guidance and continue availability of compensatory services. Those first two bullets, I will guarantee you're not being met. Not being met. And these are solid recommendations. School districts should require IEP teams to conduct the following. Annual reviews, right? A determination, a determination which services a determination of what services were provided during the period of March 13, 2020, 
and whether they were different from what's being provided in the previous IEP. So March 13, 2020 was when everything shut down. So it's clear what the recommendations are from COPA. It is very clear what they are. And so, you know, you got to look at that. Determine which services are, were effective utilizing data collected. Data collected. That's a big thing. As parents, you got to get the data. You got to get the data. You got to determine whether or not the student has made progress. Determine what services over and above is necessary to provide FAPE, which is called, a, FAPE is F-A-P-E, Free and Appropriate Education. Free and Appropriate Public Education. Um, needed to be provided to the student in the position the student would be, had have been in the IEP services, had been provided. If, if there was a disruption, where would they be? You know, honest and direct discussion about compensatory services. Most of the time it's not honest. And the, the, the funny part about this is, is that a lot of times, and, and you can see and you know just by being involved in it that a lot of the teachers are honest, a lot of schools are understaffed and overworked, but a lot of the school systems won't admit that they can't handle because if they admit it, then that means the parent is, is, is in full real rights to seek what they call private placement, which, is, which puts the school system on the hook for tuition and transportation for that private placement. So they're going to fight tooth and nail, but no one's going to admit that they just can't do. So what happens in a lot of cases is these child's, these children, our children get passed along, the parents get frustrated, the child gets frustrated, there's this never-ending fight, and then there's this animosity that's built up between the parents and the school, parent who hires advocates, there's advocates that get frustrated too. So there's animosity in a relationship between the school system and the parents and the school system and the parent advocate and there's all this tension going on when nobody really wants to say what the big problem is, is that we don't have enough resources. We don't have enough this. We don't have enough that. So that typically ends up being IEPs not being, you know, administered properly. You know, they always say the squeak wheel gets the grease. And I've seen it in action. I've seen it in action with us. We were squeaky wheel. We got grease. But the same issues we were talking about, I guarantee you 15, 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 parents had the same issues and they've complained about it, right? But they weren't, the, they weren't squeaky enough about it. They weren't persistent enough about it. They weren't going to these local CCAC meetings. They weren't, you know, banging out emails to special education on a regular basis, special education department in the hierarchy in the special education department or the hierarchy at the school. They weren't persistent, but the problem still exists. Because if they if they can't implement the IEP for my child, I know they're not implementing for the other 10, 15 other students in the class with my child. If they're not even doing his. So this is a this is not a single parent problem. This is a global problem. But you gotta be a squeaky wheel so you can get the grease. And the sad part about it is when you squeak enough wheel, they'll take care of you, which is what you ultimately want. But just think about the other children that are stuck out there. Because my thing is this. If you can't help, you you can only help your child, right? But are we really helping? What are we really doing? I, I, I mean, let me let me back up. Let me see. Let me let me back up to get the words I'm trying to say here. A squeaky wheel will get the grease. 
But there's a lot of wheels out there that aren't. And we see it all the time. Over and over again. And what ends up happening is the children of the wheels that aren't squeaky ultimately will matriculate into society and become adults without an education or very little education, possibly without the right services that are available to them once they graduate high school and become adults and all those other things. And so this is a trickle-down effect. You know, we've talked to parents that have said, we don't know what we're going to do with our child after they graduate when there's plenty of programs out there. So I would encourage our parents, on a side note, to educate yourself about the whole entire IEP process from top to bottom as much as you can. Learn about the services. Know what your school is supposed to do and what they're not supposed to do. Challenge them to get it done. At 14 years old, start thinking, well, even before 14 years old, start thinking about transition. Depending on where your child is, apply for DDA, SSI, DOORS, all those different programs that you can apply for that are public service programs for individuals with disabilities. Apply for them early before your child even gets to high school. Because once they hit high school, that time starts to tick real quick. It starts to tick real fast. And before you know it, they're a full-blown adult. You got to think about stuff like the ABLE account, especially here in Maryland. I think it's available in other states where you you, know, you can get a, a can't disable account for your child where you can put money in because SSI and other public programs will only allow you to have two th- up to $2,000 in your account. If you got more than $2,000 in any account that you have, they will cut that service off. But the ABLE account allows you to have a this separate account for your child where you can have up to $100,000 or $200,000 in that account. I have to check that out. I have to double check that number. I think it's up to a hundred, maybe a little bit more hundred thousand in account that doesn't interfere with their government received benefits, Medicaid, Medicare, SSI, because it's a separate account. And so those are the things you got to think about. Think about stuff like power attorney, get it done, you know, special needs trust, get all that stuff done before your child turns 18 you get all that paperwork done and get it locked in, put it in a safe and so on and so forth. So you have all those decision making and all those things going on so that you can get your get your loved one taken care of while you're still here and even when you pass. But anyway, I jumped off on that tangent um, about compensatory services. And just know that not all compensatory services are being given. And you have to be dogged about it as a parent to get those things done. Because my thing is this. You only get one time to raise your child and your child to go through the education process. You fight as best you can to get them the best that they require and the best that they deserve and the best that they're supposed to have and they have a right to. So I want to thank everybody for tuning in this week. Um, Just know that my thing is this. I'm going to talk about a range of topics and probably because I am a parent of a loved one or a child, young man living with a disability that I'll probably touch on something from the disability community every week when I talk about something that happens in the week. So, you know, that's that's my world. So that's the world I live in. But again, 
Thank you for tuning in. Have a blessed week on purpose. Know that God is great and God is good and he loves you and that you're more than a conqueror and that God don't make no mistakes. Peace and much love. Thank you very much for tuning in this week. Be sure to tune in next week. Hit the like and subscribe buttons. And remember, the next time somebody says something suspect, or eh, tell them my thing is this, because your opinion matters. I'm your host, Troy Sampson. Have a blessed week, and we are out. Thank you.